Good morning and a happy Friday to you folks. It is a beautiful day outside and I know it is where you are too. Today the word of the day is intrinsic motivation. Intrinsic motivation. I almost feel like I need to spell that. It begins with the letter I. Now intrinsic motivation is a deep desire from within to persist on a task. How many of us have that persistency, that stubbornness? There's an actual scientific word, intrinsic motivation. Now, one of the biggest determinants of intrinsic motivation is autonomy, the ability to do things the way we want. So do not limit yourself. If you're journaling and it feels stale, stop it. Do not limit yourself. Go out and be intrinsic motivation and get that motivation from within because do the things that you want to do to your liking. That's why you're here. You are here to become an original individual not a carbon copy. My son and I started a gratitude jar. Every day, we are writing something down that we are grateful for, dropping it in the jar. That way, if we ever have a day that we're down and out, we empty the jar out and we can see why we are so grateful on this planet. Folks, have a fantastic Friday. All right. It's time to play hard, work hard. Now, let's play hard. the Crude Life Morning Show. Play hard, work hard. Sean Forbes, Jason Spies, Ashley Smith with Truckers Against Trafficking joining us here this morning at the Williston Basin Conference as I get my levels all ready in between. It's a busy show this morning, Sean Forbes. I, th- I feel like there's twice the number of people here today than there were yesterday. Big CEO day today. Oh, yesterday yeah. was the kind of the it. appetizer mm-hmm. where they brought in the uh, North Dakota dignitaries. The B squad, if you will. No offense, but oh. today's the governor and the lieutenant governor, and then Harold Ham, the CEOs, all the big dogs are coming in today and tomorrow. Of course, uh, Mike Pompeo is coming in tomorrow, former Secretary of State under Donald Trump. So, generally, these conferences give you one day to kind of get warmed up or wind down. So it's either the front end or the back end where they. They either do one or the other, and this year it was kind of the front end, but it was still busy yesterday. People were really excited to get back into it, so I think yesterday was probably one of the more successful first days I've ever had at a conference, but uh, Ashley Smith, how about you? Hello. Hi, thank you for having me here today. How are you doing on this lovely day? I don't even know what Wednesday. day it is. Thank you. Yes. I, you know, pretty good for a Wednesday, enjoying seeing people, having good conversations, and just learning more about the companies in the area and seeing how we can partner going forward. Truckers Against Trafficking. Yes, Talk sir. to us about that. So we are a nonprofit. We, edu- we educate, equip, empower, and mobilize members of the trucking, bus, and energy industries to combat human trafficking as a part of their everyday job. So we do that through free training resources that any company can kind of enter into their system or their safety meetings to really raise awareness of what this issue is and how powerful their employees are in reporting the crime when they think they see it happening. What kinds of training do you offer the drivers? You know, you talk about awareness and things, but specifically what is the number one thing that they're looking out for? 
So when we talk to uh, either drivers or energy employees, we're really focusing on where they might see this crime during the course of their everyday jobs and uh, what those victims might look like and what they might not look like. So when you see this on the news, people talk about, you see pictures of people that are in chains or they're fearful or they just acting weird. Yeah, they're they're acting weird, and you think that it's going to be really easy to identify, but we really focus on some of those key red flag indicators. So most people don't know, but to in the United States, anybody under the age of 18 that is selling commercial sex is automatically considered a victim of human trafficking. So they need services. So if anybody sees somebody that looks maybe just they're not sure if they're 18 or not, the call needs to be made on their behalf. So we tell people to call the human trafficking hotline and that number is 1-888-3737-888. And that hotline, what they'll do is they will either get local services, somebody that can help them if they need help getting out of that situation or if they have questions or they have needs that need to be met, they can help with that. And then they also connect with local law enforcement that is trained on the issue and they know how to handle those cases and help them. So the number one indicator is anybody under the age of 18. And the second one is any evidence of what we call pimp control. So if you see somebody else watching uh, that potential victim, if they're in that area, if they drop them off and pick them up, that is usually somebody that is controlling their movements and isn't letting them leave that situation. What are the statistics? So we talk about the problem on kind of a global scale. So there are over 40 million victims of human trafficking globally. And the issue is um, it's a greed operation. So traffickers are looking to unfortunately make money and it is a $150 billion criminal enterprise. So it's the second largest criminal enterprise that makes more money than arms trafficking and it is second only to drug trafficking. With some of the recent wow. changes in um, our government, um, it seems like the border has been a little less restrictive lately. So has there been an increase that you've noticed? So we don't always connect uh, border security with human trafficking. So okay. it is something that is actually more of a domestic issue. So what's happening is that traffickers, they're identifying uh, people with vulnerabilities. So that could be somebody who is food insecure. Maybe they're, uh, they're from an abusive home or their even self-confidence is down and they're talking to people online. So traffickers will actually hone in on that and they'll be talking to multiple people at once and grooming them for that situation. So people like to think that, oh, I automatically am going to say like, oh, it's somebody from another country. My family, my community won't be affected, but they are the, they are part of that demographic that traffickers are looking for and they can, especially as more people spent more time online these years, they could be grooming untold number of potential victims all at the same time. Do you get much support from the oil and gas operators? We do. So we are fairly lucky that we've gotten to engage with quite a few companies that they see that not only is this uh, the right thing to do, but it's going to help their employees. So they'll train their employees on this issue so that they can keep an eye out for it, 
during work, but then that information ripples back into their home lives. So they're really looking more, they take care of their communities and their families better because they understand the issue. And since they learn about it at work, it's in like that non-stress environment. It's not automatically telling a parent that your kid's in danger to this, it's this is an issue. Now also think about how this impacts your home life. It's so, a tough issue nobody wants to admit is out there. And so that's why I bring it up because um, just last night, somebody found out I worked in oil and gas at the hotel I'm at. First thing they brought up was Williston, North Dakota, and the story that came out five, six years ago or whatever it was. And these stories just keep coming back, and they always identify it in oil and gas communities. And that's why I brought up do the operator support because that's a difficult situation because they're not the ones involved. But at the same time, how much social responsibility is on them because they're the ones with the business, you know, and that sort of... It's a sticky wicket. I mean, so how, how, how is that approachable from, you know, from your company to somebody in the industry? Because I, 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 I wouldn't want to be in your shoes at all. So we... What we talk about and kind of the approach we take is that we know that traffickers, they are... They're businessmen, just like all these people at this conference. They are looking for people that are going to, quote unquote, buy their services. I never even thought of that. Yeah. My, by the way, my mind went to truckers because yeah. truckers Truck against stops. trafficking. Yes. Yes. I thought a lot lizards right away on yes. a different level, you know. Yeah. And I didn't even think of the Robert Crafts, yeah. the New England Patriots owner of the world, you yeah. know. And so when you think about. When you think about traffickers, they are going to try to find where they think they're going to be large groups of men. And they're looking for people with uh, money in their pocket, time on their hands, sometimes they're away from home. So that could be a sporting event. That could be an ice fishing tournament. That could be a conference. It could be out in the field. So we, we approach that with the company saying, hey, you care about the safety of the communities that you live and work in. Let's also worry about the safety on the human trafficking side. So we make sure the training's approachable. It's easy for them to plug and play into their system, whether at a safety meeting or an orientation or their learning management system. So we're just, we tell them the problem, but we also give them part of the solution is provide that training and then we help them on the back end with policy and just language around, around how they can combat this issue. It's a mask announcement. If anybody would like a mask, they can go to 906. That is four down, five down from us. We are 911. We are the emergency response station here, 911. <laughs> we're directly across from 10 code. That's a bunch of ex-military and cops over there. So we say we're the emergency response station, but go see them if there's a problem. We're five down from Sanford where they're giving out masks. They have we, some custom rifles, a couple uh, booths this way. So <laughs> well, I think we're, we're pretty safe. I think the we're pretty safe. Mule Foundation's right there. He's got a gun. I feel yeah. pretty protected here. So, and if we we've also got the guys with the drones, couple ones down that they can kind of keep an eye on the situation. Yeah, they're us. spying though. All right. Yeah. I love what you said about. Um, I think awareness is the key thing here, right? Like letting people know what to look out for, and not only does that translate to their everyday work, but to their lives as well. Especially if they have young children that are on the internet and. You know, just talking to them about stranger danger, right? And just interesting things to keep an eye out for. I think awareness and so so many things is important. So I, lo I love what you all are doing. 
Thank you. Yeah, we see that quite often that it really, it's that ripple effect is impressive because people feel more comfortable talking about this because it's like, oh, I heard about this thing at work. Let me talk to you about this. So right. it's not, uh, I read this scary thing on the internet. It's it's something a little bit. Yeah, let's talk about it before it happens. Exactly. You so. know, before you have to read terrible stories, let's talk about it ahead of time so Definitely. that we can avoid these things. Yeah. Every little bit counts. Yeah, I was, I was cruising around the show, and I made it, I think, to the end of the first row, and then my, t- my time was up. I had to come back. Oh, really? Yeah, and I met Ashley, and I thought, this is such an important topic, and we need to have you on. I'm very happy you took some time to come out here and, and share this information. Um, do you have just a couple just uh, uh, indicators that you can share with us that you, know, that you might... People, if they notice something, that not necessarily go overboard about it, but just be aware that, okay, now that's that's a sign that's not normal. That's going down the path of possible sex trafficking. I'm not trying to insert anyone into anyone else's business, but at yep. the same time, if you see a fire, you got to call 911, right? And I will actually share a little tidbit with you just before we even go into that is that if people think that they see this crime happening, we never want them to insert, insert themselves into that situation. So it's it's safety first, not only for the person that's viewing this, but also the potential victim. And if it's not a trafficking situation, the person that you think might be the trafficker. So we want everybody to be safe in that space. So we always tell them to either call the hotline, uh, which is one 888 or if they think it's an emergency to call 911. So, because law enforcement will be able to open up an investigation in that situation. So, uh, my miniature safety moment in there is don't approach that situation, but make that call. And we do have wallet cards that talk about what information to look for and if you think that you're talking to a victim what questions to ask. So some of those questions would be, uh, do they get to keep the money they make? Uh, When was the last time they spoke to their family? Do they actually know where they are? So if somebody's in the middle of nowhere out um, at at a man camp or an oil field, if they can't tell you where they are or how they got there, that means somebody else took them there. So just understanding that. And then our two big ones is anybody- Are you safe? Do you need help? Yes. So, but even in those situations, sometimes they don't know how to ask for help or they've been trained to think that nobody's going to help them. So kind of recognizing that they may not be honest with their answers, but if you ask less direct questions, they might feel more comfortable in, in saying, no, I, I don't talk to my parents anymore. Oh, I don't actually know where I am. That'll kind of key you into like, how, how did they get here? Um, so we always, and then we always talk about anybody under the age of 18 or any evidence of somebody that you would call a pimp that's by them, that's keeping an eye on them. And then just signs of malnutrition, if they look injured, if they don't look well, or they're not dressed for the climate. So uh, it gets pretty cold up here in North Dakota. And if they're not dressed properly, why are they dressed that way? It's a very interesting use of the word pimp mm-hmm. in that context. It's the first time that's ever been just so sterile. Yeah. That's, I'm, I was... I was quite impressed with that actually and we and when we talk about this people instantly they think one specific look for pimp absolutely but, i did but really it can be <laughs> when we do our full presentations we it can be up, a woman it can be a woman absolutely a slide of uh, different human traffickers and you're talking uh, female teachers ex-firefighters militaries people that are in uh 
kind of dignitary positions that are doing labor trafficking of their domestic employees. So it looks like everybody. So you can't say, oh, I'm just looking for this one specific person. You have to look for that dynamic between two people and do they match? Should they be together? Is one fearful of the other? Is one more watchful of the other? All right. So I got a difficult question here before we conclude. Um, truckers against trafficking. Of course, all I can think of is truckers. I yes, used to sir. work for a trucking company, and so I, I'm very familiar with truckers and some of their loose language, if you will, and and just the way that it, that it goes. I'm no problem. That's why I like truckers. We call it truckers' wisdom. Their trade shows are tr- very unusual. <laughs> They're different. Uh, how do you compare a oil and gas trade show with a truckers' trade show? Have you done a truckers' trade show? Oh yeah. Yeah, talk to me about that a what? little bit. Look, look at the look on her face. So she knows what I'm talking about. Well, it's not even that. It's just that. So more recently, we've done uh, the Mid American Trucking Show and Great American Trucking Show. So Louisville and Dallas. And um, I will be perfectly honest. The biggest difference, right off the top of my head, is size. So the one that's in Louisville is. It's huge. It is such a big show, and um, that's my last big conference that I went to before everything really shut down. So, in all honesty, and it's just the droves of people. So, when you think about a conference bringing in groups of people, like I'm saying, thousands upon thousands of people walking through those aisles. So, it's not so much the the people it's just kind of the size of those and just understanding that that's a whole population of people that we are working to train that um, what's interesting is over the years the attendees have become more and more engaged in our mission and want to be more and more engaged in the fight against human trafficking so we've uh, worked hard to kind of change the hearts and minds of that industry and we're doing the same in busing and energy I like talking to the guys there because those gentlemen and women, they've got a lot of time on the road, so they think a lot. Yep. So when they get time to talk, they talk. Yes. And they've got some very unique perspectives. I love it. Anyway. So. I think one of the problems with human trafficking is the potential for a money-making operation. It's, it's a renewable operation because you can make money over and over and over again, and that's way more popular than drugs. Yeah. Right? It- when we talk about that, people. When we talk about that, people are like, "Why do people do this?" When you think about somebody that has to smuggle drugs into a country, traffic drugs in, they have to keep doing that. They have to keep going to get more supply, and that is a danger for them. But if they have one person and they can add another, if they can keep adding people, they can resell them. So it's that's the scary part, and that's why it's becoming. A, a growing problem because people are noticing that hey this is something that I can make money at and we want to stop that as much as we can yeah well how do people get a hold of you if they have any questions or want are interested in some training yes so uh, we anything can be found on our website so it's truckersagainsttrafficking.org so uh, our energy program is listed under our programs tab I personally can be uh, contacted by email at a Smith at truckersagainsttrafficking.org. If that's a bit too long of an email to, to search, you can find me on LinkedIn as well. So Ashley Smith and I have Truckers Against Trafficking listed as my employer. So feel free to connect and we can help your company enact change. Thank you, Ashley. It was great to meet you and I thank you for your service. This is an incredible thing that you've devoted your time to. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Yes. She works too
on the Crude Life Morning Show, Play Hard, Work Hard, is by the Moody River Band. Interested in becoming a sponsor? Email studio at thecrudelife.com. The Crude Life, Play Hard, Work Hard. It's sponsored in part by Great American Mining monetizes wasted, stranded, and undervalued gas throughout the oil and gas industry by using it as a power generation source for Bitcoin mining. Great American Mining Company brings the market and their expertise to the molecule. Their solutions make producers more efficient and profitable while helping reduce flaring and venting throughout the oil and gas value chain. And if you're a mineral owner, Check out how much Bitcoin you could be making right now with your valued gas. Go to GAM.AI. That's Great American Mining, GAM.AI. The Crude Life. Play hard, work hard. Is sponsored in part by... For more than 100 years, First International Bank and Trust has been headquartered in western North Dakota, home of the Bakken. Our proven record of mineral management, appraisal, and brokerage services is now enhanced by the only Bakken-specific software, Mineral Tracker. Trust First International Mineral and Land Services and Mineral Tracker to protect your interests and help build and preserve a financial legacy for generations to come. It takes an industry to build a forest. Hey folks, Jason Spies with The Crude Life. Did you know about half the trees planted in the last 20 to 30 years have died within the first year? Lack of watering, transplant shock, special interest groups, poor growing conditions are just a few reasons it takes an industry to build a forest, and that is exactly what the industrial forest does. Sustainability sheds, critical pipeline systems are implemented to ensure the forest survives and absorbs carbon for decades to come. It takes an industry to build a forest. If you're interested in sustainable forests, growing industry jobs, check out theindustrialforest.com. That's theindustrialforest.com. Play hard, work hard. Time now to work hard on the Swan Energy phone lines. Well, good day to you, my friends and listeners. Today, we have a great opportunity to speak with Marlette Dumas, and she is down in Texas in the greater Houston area, I believe. Am I correct, Marlette? Yes, Houston, Texas. Very nice. Very nice. Well, thank you for joining with me today. How are you doing? I am good. Thank you. Bright and sunny down here. Oh, wonderful. I wish it was like that up in South Dakota where I'm at. <laughs> but you're you're down there working in the oil and gas industry. And uh, this seems to be something that you've been doing for quite some time. And I, I'm feeling very excited. Why don't we start at the beginning? Start with you. How How did you get into the oil and gas sector? So at first, um, just my parents always pushed us for math and science. We grew up in an area that was very mixed um, racially. So they just thought, you know, what's the best chance for our kids? And so they always just pushed math and science. So I can remember from very, very early on that that so education somehow was just incredibly important. 
And I belong to a group that now is similar to STEM, um, TSTM, but it's now called STEM. And so just even when I was in high school, that has always been the thing for us. And my mom had introduced me to a physics laboratory run by the government. And I started out as a physicist. And I didn't want to be stuck in a room by myself all day. So eventually I, I changed my major to mechanical engineering. And I thought that renewables was the way to go at the time. But that was like 25, 30 years ago. And it hadn't quite caught on yet. So I thought, okay, I still want to be in energy. And that's when I began to meet companies like BP and Shell. And I just naturally gravitated toward um, mechanical engineering on the projects side. So I've been doing it for quite some time. And there were not very many women and definitely not many people of color. But I, I just I started there and I just hung in there. And um, it's probably gotten somewhat better, of course, over the years. But that's how I got started um, as a project engineer, a facilities engineer, actually, with BP here in Houston, Texas. And I've been doing that ever since. Was it was it, was it difficult getting taken seriously in such a male-dominated industry? In yes. The- <laughs> <laughs> yes. So at first, I think they were doing it because they were really trying hard to diversify their workforce. And some people might have said things like, you know, they hired you because you're an African-American woman or whatever. But my father always told me, hey, it doesn't matter. Right back then, anyway, they said it doesn't matter how you get in. Just make sure you do a great job once you get there. And so that's how I started. Um, I started there when I think they hired us at the time, three black women. And it was good. Um, lots of bumps along the way, but um, also formed some networks with other people on, on just how to do well and get through each day and meet the challenges each day. So at the time, I was doing some deep water projects, um, just uh, bringing them on and with design and um, just through the, like a stage gate process to bring projects online. Wow. Has it, has it gotten better than since then? I like to think so, because now I see more people that look like me. Um, I am a petite woman, so that, too, played into it quite a bit. Um, it, of course, it was very much a male-dominated world, still is, but it's it's getting better. But uh, I think that back then, I was just trying to figure out how to, and now I don't encourage anyone to do this, of course, but back then I was trying to figure out how to fit in. So I would wear pantsuits to work or um, things like that to try to m- make myself feel and look more like what they were looking like or more behaving masculine like. kind of. Yes, I took on more of a masculine persona at times. Um, sometimes I would speak up in meetings. Sometimes I wouldn't, just depending on if they were going to maybe cut me off mid-sentence or something. So I really had to just bring a mentality that, hey, just be present and try to put my ideas forward and put myself forward, even though it was not in the environment that that was welcome at the time. It wasn't not, not very welcome, but still have to somehow figure out how to dig deep and, and do it anyway. Right. I can only imagine how dif- difficult that might have been for you. Absolutely. Uh, in especially with as much education as you've gotten, it appears that you, you are very well educated. Yeah. So so my parents' message really, really um, sank deep with me. I, I really just grabbed on to that. Um, I have both my bachelor's and master's in mechanical engineering from um, in Illinois Institute of Technology in Chicago, <laughs> where my heart is, and uh, University of Colorado in Denver for my master's. Wow. That is awesome. So what is your favorite part of being involved in the oil and gas industry? What's what's the favorite part of your education oh, that you get to yes. use every day? 
<laughs> so I wouldn't say that I get to use a lot of the technical things every day. I think that that's part of it if someone chooses to go that route. Um, I went more into the project management and risk management side. But if you ask me what would I say is the best part of that, I think that when we're in engineering school and we're, we're working with students who are also some of the best in the world or they've been brought up to to understand that they need to be the best in the world, it really teaches us how to think. So how to solve problems, how to process, how to make decisions, how to guide people that are, how to be an influencer, how to guide people who are making decisions into making the right decision or the best decision. So the technical things aside, it's more so how to lead and how to influence and how to direct. And that's something that, I mean, probably you can get that in a lot of different ways, but I felt like engineering school really does teach how to solve problems critical thinking and problem solving. Very much so. Yes, very much so. I love it. Actually, I can't even because I I, I would like to think that I'm fairly good at critical thinking and problem solving. But I I don't. Ooh, that that seems like a very tough job to me. (laughs) Seems like (laughs) that there might be so much involved. How exactly do you analyze the different aspects? Gosh, so I think it's a multi step type approach for me one is is very very early on i would say learn who's who the players are who 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 are you solving the problem for where are the resources who can i go to for information if it's something that i'm not already really familiar with so just know who the players are and then how to gather information pertinent information like is this important is that important where to go to get that information who do i need to talk to and then sorting through it all. I mean, sometimes you've got some information that may not be important at all. And then some some of it is is the, the definite needle in the haystack kind of thing. How do you find that? So that, I would say, is part of it. And then how to present. Once I've made a decision or, or I think I've. I found the answer or I'm looking at this software or whatever. Um, how do you how do I present that to the people that are going to make the decision? So that, too, is important. Like what what will they be most receptive to? And if it's nothing that I don't think they're going to be receptive to, how do I couch it in a way that they will say, uh-huh, yes, I understand how we how this might be a better direction. So for me, it's, it's more of a, a process, it, it, uh, probably four or five steps, but that's how I do it. <laughs> wow. wow, I was going to say that's that's really interesting. That's that's not even just crunching numbers as much as it's also incorporating in, it sounds like human behavior and uh, and and other and other outside information. I couldn't help but thinking how nice it would be if uh, more more journalists would do that amount of research too. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, yeah, they probably do, but yeah, that that's true. Oh, uh, some of them absolutely do. I can't Yeah, I couldn't imagine what it would be like <laughs> I be, be them. Right. No, it'd, it'd be a high pressure job. That's for sure. Although, mm-hmm. right. Has has the pressure grown in Texas since, uh, well, since mid-January? And, and then, of course, that cold snap. Have have things been changing for you down there? So, so yes and no. I, I think what really caught us was the storm, right? But um, as far as folks working from home and things like that, yes, that's still ongoing. But But like I said, some of them are are starting to come back and some of them were working from home already on some type of limited basis anyway. But yes, I think the, the pressure is um, the industry is going through a, a change right now. Right. So we've got um, the people think that maybe oil and gas or, or uh, is not as attractive uh, as, as it has been in the past. So we're looking at other things now like renewables and 
and things like that. So that's coming on board, even though it may seem slow right now, I think that it's going to be very, very important as we move forward. So a lot of the larger, I've only, I've only worked for, I should have said this earlier, I've only worked for large operators, right? So they're starting to change some of their, their ways of thinking on what might be a way to go in the future. So maybe not so much petrochemicals, maybe more uh, renewables or what they could get into, um, like, for example, electric cars is, is becoming a thing, right? So what can they do to try to take part in that new direction that our society is, that we're going as a society? So even things like, I don't want to bring up political things, but things such as like global warming and things like that. So we're trying to figure out what what we want to look like as a leader still in the industry, even though things are starting to change. Yeah, well, and that makes sense because, like you said, there there are quite a lot of changes, and I'm sure that there's going to be quite a lot more throughout the rest of the year. I mean, we, we only just made it out of February, right? Right. So I guess kind of a, a big question, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, a big question that a lot of people are wondering is where where are things going to be going from here? Do you think that this is going to constitute kind of a cut down on, on oil and gas itself, or do you think it's going to bring about more of an integration and a balance between renewable energy and the oil and gas industry? I know that uh, Texas yeah. kind of prides itself on that balance. Yes. So I've been in Texas now about 25 years, and I've seen it go from where it was heavily oil and gas, where it really was the number one industry here, and we were world leader um, not just a leader in the U.S., but world leader as far as almost like a headquarter type situation. Now, Houston itself has taken on many other industries as kind of a, a headquarters, right? So you've got health and care and things like that down here now. And then oil and gas, the industry itself, the energy, energy, the energy industry itself has started to change. So I'm going to say yes. It, the funny thing, what I think sometimes is just really ironic. I'll, I used to pull into the office and I would see some of my colleagues driving electric cars and things like that. And I'm like, how do you work for a large oil and gas company and pull <laughs> in an electric car? So, I mean, even us, I mean, even in our, in our circles, we can see that things are changing. So would you say it's going to be somewhat of a blended type situation? I say very much so, yes. Even though the profits with the numbers that they're looking for right now may not be there, I think that society is going to push us or at least make us strongly consider how to make that type of energy more profitable or more attractive. Um, we Sure, we're going to have enough to last for many, many years, but the, I think now that they're trying more, okay, what else can we do? What can we do differently and still stay <laughs> in the good graces of, of society? So I think that they're almost being forced to be more of a blended type um industry in the industry the energy industry when i say i'm not talking just oil and gas i'm talking right. about energy in general yes right do, i mean do you do you see this being kind of a, a positive i mean is it actually helping i guess is the real question is it do you think that um moving to a more blended industry will actually help the the issues that are being brought up by the climate i mean or do you think that this is just kind of just where society seems to be shifting to I think both. I think both. There are a lot of people who are paying attention to what they're doing. Like you may notice people are recycling more or whatever. So those people are learning what it means to care more for the environment. So they're almost wanting to see that. But at the same time, if as a company, they have their their shareholders, their stakeholders, their their other affiliations or relationships, and they need to please those people too. 
So there, that blend is going to come regardless. And I mean, it may not be 50-50 anytime soon, but, <laughs> but it is coming. Certainly, yeah. Well, I guess that actually kind of brings me to another thought, you know, in speaking with, for example, Governor Doug Burgum, he had mentioned a whole bunch about uh, uh, carbon sequestration um, and, and, and using coal. Actually, Governor Mark Gordon had mentioned that, too, in Wyoming. Do you think that Texas is going to take a focus on coal to begin with? Or do you think that it's going to be more of a focus specifically on like the solar and uh, and wind turbine energy for right now? Or, or, I mean, I guess back to that balance, there's options. So something clean for sure. I mean, something clean for sure, because they want to try to stay, they want to try to be as um, respectful to the environment as possible. But yes, I, I don't really know much about coal, um, so I can't really speak on that. But I do know that companies, they at the end of the day, at the end of the day, they're go- they're responsible for answering to not only our government and things like that, entities like that, but they also have their shareholders, their stakeholders, and people that they their their bottom line. And so they sometimes they really do have to follow. They have to follow in that direction, um, but but do it as as cleanly and neatly as possible. So I see I see that you mentioned solar. So I see things like solar and wind creeping up. But um, at the end of the day, they still have to stay afloat as as a business. Right. Right. So that's that's kind of where I see it. Well, and I know that there's I mean, obviously, there's multiple options when it comes to to energy and where we get our energy from. Um, I keep forgetting that nuclear is even a thing. And I guess even that nuclear. was we were a just, big. Yeah, we were just <laughs> I was just having I was just chatting with a, a long chat, actually, with a, a colleague yesterday about that. And yes, I do see now the U.S. right now. OK, maybe not not as much as a big player, but I do think it's coming. Hmm. I I have reservations about about nuclear energy. It's a lot of power, mm-hmm. <laughs> which, which could is. be very very good, but it could be yes. very very bad too. And it could be very bad. You know, exactly scary, but really cool. And I mean, geo, I don't know if you've look explored much into like geo uh, geothermal. Um, there there's this other other sources. You're right. It's a big there's a it's a big playing field. So, do the businesses that you work with do they work in the uh, geothermal energy realm? So no, not right now. The work I'm doing, I'm doing volunteer work right now for the Society of Petroleum Engineers here in Houston. And um, so they too have even started to change their, um, their the way that they, they run their organization. So it's now professional professionals in energy. Um, so I would say, yes, there's a change across the board. Absolutely. So, well, yeah, I mean, I guess we've, yeah, we've been talking uh, for a little bit about all the changes. We know we know more changes are going to be coming, but and it's so mm-hmm. hard to predict with well with so many variables. So the thing I also see is a lot of the folks that have been in the industry a while. Some people might call them seasoned oil and gas folks. They that's all they've known. They've been in it for. 20, 30 years, they, they just happened to st- were able to stay in the industry. And I think they'll, they're going to hope that things stay, that they can stay in oil and gas until their retirement, which should be, you know, relatively soon. But some of the, the people that are new, like say those that have less than five, 10, 15 years experience, they've grown up in the industry knowing that there are other options for energy sources. And so I think they're going to be more comfortable use the word comfortable with changes of uh, where we source our energy from so i think for them it will be okay that it, it will be fine 
it's it's just kind of an interesting, I guess, uh, to watch the the shift, the mindset shift. But that actually that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So that's what I what I'm saying. The, the playing into the mind shift, yeah. or even even the mindset, right? Um, some of them are, are like some of the, the students that I work with now. They're okay. Their their minds are more flexible. They're more. Oh yes, I see how that's better for us. I see how it's better for an environment. We can still get close to our numbers, and they're more they're more agreeable to understanding that yes, this is the direction we're going. But when I talk some to some of the folks that have been in the industry like me for a, you know fairly a while anyway, they don't want to see oil and gas go. They they think that that's there. It's been I don't want to say cash cow, but it's been bread and butter for so long that. That's that's what they're there's well, you know, I'm retiring in five years, so hopefully I can ride it out, <laughs> you know, right. so it's, it's that kind of thing. Well, it's interesting, too, because I've actually been hearing quite a lot more about how um, our oil and gas industry is actually much more clean and environmentally friendly than yes. the, the population would like to actually give credit for or that they or that they know about, I guess, too, you know, yes. so lots of things have come into place from the government. Like, can you remember things like Sometimes folks talk about, used to talk about flaring, or maybe they still, like for now, they still talk about fracking. So those things are things that we hear and see on different media, right? Um, what they may not, what, what society may not be so aware of is the steps that we're taking to make things better. Um, so you don't see a lot of that anymore, where they're where people, where oil and gas companies maybe maybe not respecting the environment as much as um, they had in the past. So now they're being more, um, a lot of our practices are now more um, stringent or uh, we're not allowed to do that or we're only for certain periods of time or something like that. And those those steps, those, even though those steps seem small, those, and some of them are big actually, they don't get, um, they don't make time. They don't get airtime. So people don't get to see that we're making those changes. Right. Well, and that's something that I had noticed as well. Um, it, do you does is now is this a factor? Is this something that gets taken into account as you are assessing the different projects as well as how you know what what steps have been taken to be more environmentally friendly when it comes to the projects? Yes, yes, very much so. So, I, as a risk manager, which I'm I'm no longer a risk manager, but back when I was, um, we would we have different. How do you want to say different components of the project that we assess? And one of them, and it always is so, is safety and environment. We always seek out what could be the risks and how do we weigh them? Like, how do we mitigate them? How do we assess them? And then what do we do to, to actually just lower or completely remove that risk entirely? What can we do differently to remove that risk entirely? So, yes, absolutely. And I'm talking about environmental risk. I'm talking about safety. So when I say environmental things that have to do with the environment or the air we breathe or whatever, uh, and is it is it a risk and how do we how do we mitigate it? How do we move it? And, and how, what do we do if it does happen? What, what What's our response? So, yes, absolutely. So. Right. Well, and then I, I guess I was kind of wondering, too, how much how much accountability is there for the companies when it comes to these projects to be environmentally friendly or to try and take those steps to be as environmentally friendly as possible? Or, or Well, there is. Yes, I agree with you. There is accountability, sometimes even at a government level, like maybe there's a fine that might be assessed. And then even like I mentioned earlier, for shareholders, stakeholders type people, um, they need to know that we're we're behaving in a certain way. And they they don't if we're not, then they'll move on to to invest in someone else. 
So absolutely, there's accountability in that regard. And then even at the at the project team level, um, they, we don't like to do finger pointing, of course, but we work as a team to try to do what's best and, and we're held accountable even within our own small groups to try to do make, make the best decision. Nice. Yeah, see... <clears throat> It just it just kind of seems like these are the types of inf- this is the type of information, I guess I should say, that doesn't generally get put out there because the oil and gas industry is is made to look so, so awful. And so I I, I hadn't even brought it up to talk about before, but I, I guess I had been wondering about the, the different levels of accountability and consideration when it came to that. Um, mm-hmm. So that's. That's, That's good. a spectrum, I would say. It's a spectrum. So there's always going to be some type of a governmental um, policy or we need to follow this uh, rule. And so there's fines. And those, of course, we don't want to have to get stuck with fines. So there's always that. All the way down to the smaller things, you know, like maybe there's a person who doesn't want to sit on a particular team because they've decided to take this direction. So that person may choose to work on a different project team. And like I said, it's all it all boils down to relationships do they want to be affiliated with a team and a, a set a set of people who have this type of thinking um, that we want to do do things right and respect the environment even though we're in oil and gas so yes yeah I've seen some people make decisions like I have a girlfriend um, she decided to go with a company that does that wind turbines she's been oil and gas ever since day one just like me but um, she's made decided to you know she, she still wants to be in energy but She's decided to to take a different route. Yeah. Sina, it's fascinating, and, and mostly because and mostly because of accountability. She doesn't want to be the person who's on the team that that's um, not respecting our environment and things like that. Well, that's not that's not a bad mindset to keep either, mm-hmm. especially when the consideration that you're taking is specifically for other people. I've I've heard uh, different different things about the wind turbine technology. Um, it'd be I don't know. So it's 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 kind of interesting seeing the differences between all of them. I I obviously am not a professional within the industry, and so I get to I'm lucky in the way that I get to hear firsthand a lot of information only because I have this awesome opportunity to speak with really cool people like you. Um, thank you. So <laughs> thank you. I very very much appreciate it. Actually, uh, Talk Texas Oil had uh, recommended that we get into touch with you because of all of your extensive. Uh, background within the industry so I was right, right. very excited about it yeah thank you yeah I like working with her she's an awesome person yeah I guess I'm still kind of new to doing this with the crude life so I don't know too much about talk Texas oil or the the petroleum uh, association that you are involved in either oh yes society of petroleum engineers yes. or well that's its former name anyway um, yeah, so that group, uh, even though it's called Society of Petroleum Engineers, at least up until just recently, um, it's it really is more, um, it's not just petroleum engineers. There's almost everyone from every area of uh, oil and gas. So we have G&G and, um, gosh, we have facilities engineers, pipeline. We have a lot of different folks, but it's a good um, resource. We have, of course, classes and seminars and all those types of things um, so people can study other parts of the industry within our organization. Um, and then we do things like uh, hiring events, which we have one coming up at, uh, in early April. Um, so it's a, it's a, just an outstanding resource for people, everyone in the oil and gas. And, and now what we'd like to say the energy industry, because we've opened it up to renewables. So yes, it's a really good resource. And um the other organizations that I'm in, they too, even though some of them are, are 
for women, like Women's Energy Network and things like that, they too are um, very inclusive as far as, I mean, yes, it began with a group of women <laughs> that were in the oil and gas industry and we were trying to figure out how do we manage our way through um, being very minority. Um, but that too is another excellent resource for women um, in oil and gas. Definitely. Sounds like it. What what kind of advice do you think you'd have for any ladies who might be listening and are considering getting into the oil and gas industry or into the energy industry in general, I guess? Okay. Uh, so first of all, I'd say just learn as much as you can while you can. That's There's a learning curve that is there and it's it's steep, right? They don't if you're not a petroleum engineer, they don't teach this in school, right? So it's pretty steep. Align yourself with the right people, a mentor or someone who's been in the industry a while that maybe there's just a person who you know that's in the industry that definitely align yourself with them and, and build a great relationship. Learn how to build relationships. That's another key thing. Um, but I would say it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's competitive. It is competitive, but that's probably not the most important thing. I'd say the most important thing is to learn the industry, learn it inside and out, uh, learn learn their job inside and out, because it, almost every moment counts. It's almost like a pressure cooker. Um, when I go in in the beginning of the day, there's already problems still left over from yesterday. So you're really working hard to cram as much into one day as possible and just learn how to do that. So time management, how to solve problems and, and learn what you learn the job really, really well. The industry is so complex. Um, you asked me earlier about why would I have even chosen oil and gas? I chose it because it, the risk for I, I'm upstream, right? I've done a little bit of everything, but I'd say upstream, especially the the risk that and when I say risk, I mean being able to push like technology and things like that, um, deep water or length of a pipeline or something like that where it's never been done before. Align themselves with someone like that who knows who has a history or some experience with how challenging the industry can really be and how to solve those pro tough problems and that it's okay to learn how to take calculated risks, things like that. That's what's going to set the difference. Um, just understand that that is the tone that's always going to be the tone. Um, just be be willing to work hard to be able to work in that type of an environment where it's just high pressure almost every day. Nice. Be be prepared to, to work on your motivation and perseverance, in other words. Yes. Yes. And the other th difference I'd say in, in other parts of the energy industry, some of um, some companies work in in let's just say hundreds of thousands of dollars or maybe a few million dollars. But if they're going to work with like an operator, someone that's a world leader or has largest project X project in the world, they're going to be working on projects that are billions of dollars, right? So sometimes six, seven, eight, ten billion dollars. So understand that the, it, sometimes it's not even the size of the project that matters, but just understand that we're talking real money here, mon more money than some people ever seen in their lifetime but these projects are some of them are really really big dollar and there's always safety involved there's timing involved schedules cost all those things and if it's a, if they're losing a few thousand dollars in some parts of the industry that's no big deal but when you're talking about millions of dollars that's a big deal and we're responsible for that right the project team members i might have a piece of the project that they're responsible for that's x millions of dollars so be able to understand that hey the the work that you're doing it's very very important 
And it's affecting people's lives. When we flip that switch, we expect power to come out. When we go to the gas station, we expect fuel to come out. So just understand that we're doing a very important job. And it's our responsibility to learn our job really well and do the best that we can, even though we're we're in a, a world that's changing every day. Yeah, just just keep learning and, and stay on top of stay on top of what they need to know for the for their role and, and the project and the company in general. I love it. That's brilliant advice, probably for any industry, but I love it. That's brilliant. Mm -hmm. Thank (laughs) you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today, Marlette. I very much appreciate it. Sure. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. And I I hope I hope at some point I might be able to talk to you again. You never know. Of course. Absolutely. I'll be right here. (laughs) Wonderful. Absolutely. Well, um, is there anything else that you would like to add? Any, any fun? Oh, well, happy, I know I'm a day late, but happy um, International Women's um, History Day uh, to the women that are there and all the great work that they're doing. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Um, I, we're getting there. We are, we are really getting there. I think so. I think good things are coming. I do. I truly believe that coming. good things are going to be yeah. around the corner and, and yeah. uh, it's going to look up. It's going to be great. <laughs> Absolutely. So thank you. Well, thank you. Have a wonderful rest of your day. And uh, I look forward to in the future when we do get to speak again. Likewise. Thank you so much. Have a great day. All right, my friends, that was Marlette Dumas, and she is a brilliant mind in the oil and gas industry, has been for quite some time. And if you enjoyed listening to what she had to say, make sure that you go check out the rest of what thecrudelife.com has to offer. Exclusive interview industry news, environmental innovation at thecrudelife.com. heard on the crude life morning show play hard work hard is by the moody river band interested in becoming a sponsor email studio at the crude life.com and i've always been here time always been kept warm i got the shelter for getting ready for the storm the crude life with host jason speaks my name is Jason Spies, and this is the Crude Life Daily Update. On today's episode, we talk with former U.S. Secretary of State and publicly rumored to be presidential candidate Mike Pompeo, who was recently at the Williston Basin Petroleum Conference in Bismarck, North Dakota. This is the Crude Life content correspondent Jenica Hauser at the press conference with Mike Pompeo. For example, the climate tax, how do you feel that's going to affect the global trade? Yeah, it's bad for America. It's, uh, it will impose costs on a product that the United States uses not only for its internal purposes. We forget, we think about cars, gasoline, right? We think about uh, the energy, natural gas-fired power plants that provide electricity, but 
we ought not forget how much how much of our fossil fuel products are processed into all kinds of things plastic things that we use uh, medical devices this is an industry that impacts every sector of the American economy and therefore our ca capacity to sell all of our products around the world at affordable prices we, we want to be the producer we want to be the manufacturer these jobs matter in the United States of America we all know that when you tax something you get less of it and so these threats that this administration has put forward these proposals that intend to decrease the capacity for America to produce energy affordably, put all of those manufacturing jobs, all of the good work that happens here in the Williston basis, and then America's capacity to extend those benefits to the world that puts it at risk. Hi, this is Haley Bolin, KFYR TV. With things like the recent Colonial Pipeline hack, how reliable is America's critical infrastructure and what kind of changes do you think need to be made to secure it? This has been something that I've worked on. Frankly, I worked alongside it with uh, North Dakota's own Kevin Kramer when we were on the Energy and Commerce Committee together, uh, like a long time ago. We, we've always known that there was risk to this infrastructure, and so we've done a lot indeed. Uh, the utilities across the states have done a great deal. There's lots of work that's gone into protecting these key economic energy infrastructure projects and operations. Defense is hard to play. Offense is relatively easy in the cyber world. So there is an important federal component. To listen to the full-length press conference or other exclusive interviews or fresh content from the Williston Basin Petroleum Conference in Bismarck, North Dakota, visit thecrudelife.com. From the staff here at the Crude Life Daily Update, my name is Jason Spies, asking you to always remember, energy is more than an industry, it's a way of life. The Crude Life is sponsored in part by... For more than 100 years, First International Bank and Trust has been headquartered in western North Dakota, home of the Bakken. Our proven record of mineral management, appraisal, and brokerage services is now enhanced by the only Bakken-specific software, Mineral Tracker. Trust First International Mineral and Land Services and Mineral Tracker to protect your interests and help build and preserve a financial legacy for generations to come. It takes an industry to build a forest. Did you know about half the trees planted in the last 20 to 30 years have died within the first year? Lack of watering, transplant shock, special interest groups, poor growing conditions are just a few reasons it takes an industry to build a forest, and that is exactly what the Industrial Forest does. That's theindustrialforest.com. Interested in becoming a sponsor? Email studio at thecrudelife.com. We're going to do a good old-fashioned Bakken barbecue. Halliburton has been cooking for two days. Uh, they've cooked 2,500 pounds of pork, 800 pounds of sausage, uh, over 500 pounds of chicken. So, banging and the vocals are Brother, it ain't country, no. Everyone's favorite are the fish tacos, but they've got burgers, steaks, salads, I mean, pretty much everything. not control. hear it on the radio and don't turn it up. Brother, it ain't country, no. Here and the first experience was, oh, where are all the rigs? Because you have so much country here. Everything about whiskey, sipping, guitar picking, tractors, trailers, trucks, or prison, man, it ain't a country song. In a car, they're in a tent, they're in some other building that's not meant for human habitation. We've actually found people living in haystacks, in uh, grain bins. We found one guy that, that basically gets shelter in a culvert each night. It ain't country, no. This was one of those stories where one reporter can't cover. There's too much happening at one time in too many places. If you hear it and it ain't stuck in your head all day, 
If you're not making money in the Bakken, you just truly are not thinking hard enough. Brother, it ain't country, no. Looking for a helping hand? Look at the end of your doggone arm. North Dakotans aren't looking over their shoulder for the government to help them. Some fur coat wearing wannabes producing your stuff. And brother, you ain't country, no. If you can't move to it, groove to it, up and slam some boots to it, party to it all night long. If it ain't about whiskey sipping, guitar picking, tractors, trailers, trucks, or prison, man, it ain't a country song. As long as I'm working, my mom and dad are happy. Okay. And a shower. Well, that was always the key, especially going to Thunder Bay. And he doesn't like life, I guess. <laughs> Insanity, right? North Dakota, the Bakken Plague. The Crude Life. Play hard, work hard. Is sponsored in part by... It takes an industry to build a forest. Hey folks, Jason Spies with The Crude Life. Did you know about half the trees planted in the last 20 to 30 years have died within the first year? Lack of watering, transplant shock, special interest groups, poor growing conditions are just a few reasons it takes an industry to build a forest, and that is exactly what the industrial forest does. Sustainability sheds, critical pipeline systems are implemented to ensure the forest survives and absorbs carbon for decades to come. It takes an industry to build a forest. If you're interested in sustainable forests, growing industry jobs, check out theindustrialforest.com. That's theindustrialforest.com. The Crude Life. Play hard, work hard. Is sponsored in part by... For more than 100 years, First International Bank and Trust has been headquartered in western North Dakota, home of the Bakken. Our proven record of mineral management, appraisal, and brokerage services is now enhanced by the only Bakken-specific software, Mineral Tracker. Trust First International Mineral and Land Services and Mineral Tracker to protect your interests and help build and preserve a financial legacy for generations to come. Crude Life with Jason Spies. Thank you for joining the program today. You know, I, I come from an oil background. My family's been in the oil and gas industry for 60 years. I, I think the thing with the younger generation is the younger generation has pretty much bought into the climate change phenomena. They really believe everything that people tell them. We just want to thank everybody that has been so supportive of us, and especially you, Jason. Without, without your help, I don't think our event would be as successful as it is. So I, I don't want to be real critical of them because being a guy who's, you know, dad has several small businesses and, and coming from that sort of small business background, I get it. I mean, the, the, the operators here were put in a real bad position by the state of North Dakota. I'm glad that we've got people like you to pay attention and bring us information on stuff like this. Prices can't go any lower for services. I, I, they're, they're too low right now. I, our margins are in the single percentage point if we're lucky, and we're not lucky that often. You're exactly right. ESG is becoming more and more important to shareholders. I can see for my 20 companies, they take it very serious. It makes perfect sense, and I thought you had a really good 
show last week. Jason, I love your inquisitive questions because you you ask important questions that uh, that lead to the most important truths. Hey, this is Kevin Kramer representing proudly the state of North Dakota in the United States Senate. Talking to Jason Speece, who's like the best energy interviewer in the world. No one does an interview like Jason Speece. We all like living the crude life, so... <laughs> 